look at um, the book. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of a gloss. Um, so I'm going to give you a little bit of a gloss of what it is that I'm trying to do and trying to execute in this particular project. And then, um, and then what I, and then I've had an opportunity to sort of talk to Toby a little bit, and we're going to sort of have Toby sort of um, um, throw it, run us through some questions and answers. And his questions are really quite um, searing. And, and that's exactly what we want at this point, because sometimes, you know, you give a book talk and it's like, mm, yeah, you know, and it's like a little gloss and it's like smoothing over. And what I'm hoping is that this is a real kind of exchange that creates an op that opens up the conversation for all of us, because ultimately this work is provisional, like all our work is. It's about ways in which that we move on, right? It's like this is a statement that I have made right now, and and it's not it's not secure, it's not reverent, it's not I'm not deifying anything. I want to move on from this to learn, to grow, to to push myself into the archives, to push myself theoretically, and so on, with in, into the next instantiation around this work. Okay, years ago, on entering Portugal's National Archive, an exhibit on early modern exploration caught my eye. It was 1998, six years after Spain had commemorated the anniversary of Christopher Columbus's 1492 voyage. Not wanting to be outdone by Spanish nationalism, the Portuguese staged an equally impressive celebration of Bartolomé um, Diaz's rounding of Cape Good Hope and Vasco da Gama's actual voyage to India, which, was, which were accompanied by a world expo and numerous international cultural festivals acknowledging Portugal's former place in the world. In addition to reprinting many 15th and 16th century chronicles testifying to Portugal's global footprint, the National Archive curated various exhibits to display the cultural patrimony. Perusing the contents of the exhibits, one could not but notice the scrolls, papyri, embellished and laminated text that alongside the esoteric scripts announced far more than Portuguese exploration of North and Eastern Africa, West Central Africa, and the Middle East, South and East, South, um, South and East Asia. The Portuguese court um, received inhabitants of these regions as notables who, on delivering their respective sovereigns' correspondence, enjoyed the protective status of emissaries. In this enactment of Renaissance diplomacy, the Portuguese, the emissaries, the authors of the various texts, steeped their rhetorical protocol in ornate forms of address. They stood and spoke as equals, which the lords, emirs, negos, emperors, pashas, manikangos, and princes conveyed through the detailed invocations of their royal titles. Pressed for time, I pushed on and into the archive, but not before long, not, but not before um, a long look at the letters crafted in Amharic that, that Ethiopia's ruler addressed to his Christian brother and peer, the Portuguese sovereign. Little did I understand that this court then, that this correspondence, embellished with royal, royal titles and diplomatic in scope, troubled the conventional representations shared by contemporary Africans and their global descendants regarding the early modern European encounter with the larger world. In the popular narrative, defined by conquests, colonial impositions, possession, and dispossession, what role, if any, did royal titles play? If the titles didn't matter, why were all the parties involved constantly invoking them? In the eyes of the Europeans, what functions did they serve? How might these titles reveal something different about a well-known past typified by the easy juxtaposition of conquerors and conquered winners and victims, colonizers and colonized, masters and slaves. Stated differently, in the contemporary African and its related diasporic imaginary, as well as among scholars of colonial slavery, the foundational premise, the foundational premise resides in the abject and violated body of the enslaved, the object unmoored and alienated from all pre-existing social ties. Dominance resulting in objectification, always already conceived as always already conceived as secular in form, did not engender an inquiry into a previous status. For this reason, the process of enslavement foreclosed an engagement 
with the past, thus constituting the slave as an epistemic object of the here, now, and future. Simply stated, a master was a master and a slave a slave. But language matters, and as a historian of Africans, I was keen on knowing if the use of royal terminology in the text was related to a grammar of politics that perhaps informed Europe's encounter with Africa and the subsequent histories that unfolded. Framed another way, what role, if any, did the acknowledged existence of the political in Africa play in shaping early modern European expansion? To which a final related question has been appended. How might this political grammar be illustrative of past that have been lost under the subsequent weight of successive colonial impositions and our restrictive political imagination? There are a lot more spaces up here. Just come on up. That's a good place for me to breathe right here. Just come on up. It's all good. Thank you. Thank you for being here. The terminology of the letters allowed me to conceive of the pervasiveness with which European chroniclers and travel writers used Iberian royal tropes to describe the earliest encounter with Africans. Royalty saturated the landscape. With this awareness, I have reimmersed myself in the familiar travel logs and chronicles describing the European encounter with Africa. It is immediately clear that the terminology forms a corpus, a register, if you will, questioning the idea of European apotheosis that in turn telescoped the emergence and dominance of a, of, of a slave trade mediated by commodification in which tenuous relations were market-driven. In pondering the ubiquitous use of royal terminology, I'm asking how might, how might one read this phenomenon as an acknowledgment of African sovereignty that was simultaneously constitutive of early modern European or early modern Iberian imperial statecraft, incessantly focused on the Europeans' pervasive deployment of royal terminology in reference to African sovereigns, I intentionally rely on the narrative literature composed of chronicles and travel logs that has been foundational to the framing of the earliest encounters between Africans and Europeans. In the extant documents, familiar to the point of being commonsensical, and I want to say that again, in these extant documents, familiar to the point of being commonsensical, it is, it is possible to glimpse traces of a past that, tra that tack between African and European history, which begs for a reconsideration of, new of the new world origin of blackness, the early modern African diaspora and Atlantic history. And one of the things I'm going to do in this, in this talk, and one of the things that's actually in, in, in the book itself, is, is, a, is a method that I sort of didn't announce in the book, and that is the process of lingering, right? And, and, and you, I'm going to come back to that process, right? Because I think that part of what the work is trying to do is that we, it's trying to move us beyond this kind of, this rush, this kind of rush that we kind of know the history, that we know a process, that we know a dynamic, that we know an event. We already know how to curate it, how to represent it, how to frame it. And part of what I'm interested in is, is the process of lingering. What happens if one lingers, right? Not lingers in terms of like over centuries, but lingers over a moment to think about what kind of possibilities there are at that particular moment for other routes, for other ways of imagining and conceiving and framing a story, a narrative, a history, and histories, right? And that process of lingering is something that we don't actually, we haven't had the patience yet to accord peoples of African descent because we already are freaking configuring that story in, in such a manner that we, we, we fundamentally believe that we know what the outcome is, that we already know what the outcome is, and therefore that history just has to be told and then just sort of is then reproduced, rather than sort of thinking of what kinds of possibilities there could have been as opposed to what kinds of possibilities there were as a result of centuries later. The interpretive practice of rereading the early modern colonial library for evidence, understandings, and events complicated the inaugural moments of European expansion, also of European expansion, also offers the possibility to enrich knowledge production as it relates to the formation of the African diaspora. It engenders an origin story still in need of being conceived that irrespective of the demands of our 
of our um, post-colonial present has implications for how the past unfolds. Obviously, the narrative of slavery and freedom stood on the horizon, but a strategic rereading of the early modern colonial library also questions truths bequeathed to us from a subsequent liberal era that to this day still colonizes our imaginary when it comes to framing 15th century European encounters with Africa. Stated less abstractly, the European encounter with Africa is generally not seen as a, a site of theorization with regard to the political. But the political informs every text of this encounter. Rhetoric and performances of lordship alongside the legal regimes, ceremonies, and pomp are constitutive of early modern politics, both in the form of sovereign power and sovereignty. Scholars of the slave trade usually look at these as anecdotes, at best curiosities that figure in cultural history as exceptional instances that are quickly relegated in, fa in favor of serial data or abstractions, the slave. I'm intent on reading the rhetoric, incidents, ceremonies, and rituals embedded in the chronicles and travel, and travel accounts as political tropes. These tropes and anecdotes prominently manifest in the well-worn tomes of the colonial library engender an equally valid reading of the colonial past as it relates to Africa, Africans, and the formation of the African diaspora. Let us turn from the text on display in Portugal's National Archive to one of the most iconic moments of the European encounter with Africans. We know this story. We heard it. We've read it. We've heard it and read it since we've been school children, if not subsequently. In 1441, building on years of previous uh, Portuguese trading, hunting, and fishing expeditions the scout that scoured the Atlantic coastline south of the Cape of Bajador, a small fleet of caravels anchored at Lagos on the southern Portuguese coast. As the, new, as the returning crew discharged their cargo in the, pre, uh, their cargo in the presence of, of the Infante Dom Enrique, popularly known as Henry the Navigator, the spectacle of the handful of captives drew the attention of the royal party. Though few in number, the captives sparked commentary, but also expectations. Recalling this event, and anticipating the future it foretold, the royal chronicler, Gomez de Zorada, speculated about royal sentiment. Quote, may we not think thou didst feel joy, Zorada conjectured about the prince's reaction, not so much for the number of captives taken, as for the hope thou didst conceive of the others that, that thou couldst taken. In projecting royal will, the chronicler envisioned how the prince's imaginary transformed captives into slaves while conjuring a robust slave trade into existence. Zorara was quick to add that the prince was not unduly focused on wealth accruing from a future trade in slaves. Thy joy, observed the chronicler, was solely from the one holy purpose of thine to seek salvation for the lost souls of the heathen. Enslavement afforded the captive salvation and true freedom. And yet, wrote the chronicler, the greater benefit was theirs, for though their bodies were now brought into subjection, that was a small matter in comparison of their souls, which would now possess true freedom forevermore, end quote. One can easily dismiss Rara's musings about the soul and salvation and true freedom as ideology at work, which in fact it was. But an undue focus on ideology privileges secular skepticism at the expense of faith, reduces Christianity to an instrument of power, and, and most germane to the narrative that follows, has caused scholars to lose sight of Catholicism's formidable yet layered political history with regard to Africa and Africans. The scholarship on the Catholic encounter with Africans obviously has transcended the iconic image of the slave trade in which a solitary priest baptized enslaved Africans as their captives compelled them on, on board. Catholic missions, though spare, um, spa, uh, sparse, were an established reality in a number of 16th century West and West Central African kingdoms. Catholicism had acquired considerable debt because African converts, notably the elites, but also commoners, had transformed it into an indigenous phenomenon. 
While the earliest missions, especially among the Congo peoples, have attracted scholarly attention, we still have yet to fully consider Christianity's institutional and intellectual complexity, which sanctioned the presence of the imaginary priest and insinuated Catholicism into Africa. Even if we concede the limited role that the church's conscience played in this process, the limited role it played in this process, one needs to ponder the efficacy of scripture, of theology, papal annuncios, the particulars of church-state relations, and Christian relations with the extra-ecclesium. Extra to acknowledge that the iconic imagery, imaginary priest and his gestures were superficial should not foreclose an examination of the institutional mechanisms and intellectual traditions that mediated the Catholic encounter with Africa and Africans. In the eyes of the church, the priest's presence transcended the issue of Christian conscience, church-state relations, theology, papal authority, papal bulls, the evolving Episcopal, Episcopal church centered around the diocese, church canons, and canon law all came to the fore when medieval Christians encountered infidels or pagans, framed differently. In overlooking Catholicism's institutional history and its related intellectual currents, we have lost sight of a history of a tradition of Christian polity, of politics, Christian politics, that brought into relief the simultaneity of early modern Africa and European sovereignty, which perhaps offers a more complicated explanation for why the priests stood at the quay. Here I want to suggest how and under what circumstances Catholic dogma, institutions, and law mattered in the European encounter with Africans. Um, and so and this history magnifies a field of politics concerning early modern sovereignty that culminated in the taxonomy of African difference, which in turn rendered the inhabitants of some polities into slaves, right? And that's one of the key things, some polities into slaves. Even prior to the systemization, the systemization of the slave trade and slavery, which only two years later came to be exclusively linked with people of African descent, we see how Christianity mediated encounters with pagan polities resulting in different outcomes. To say as much calls into question the teleos that has long served to absorb the African-European encounter and its immediate history into the story of New World slavery thereby overlooking the part that Africa and Africans played in the evolution of Iberian sovereignty and imperial expansion prior to 1492 alongside African history. Though familiar with the Portuguese and Spanish encounters with Africans, scholars rarely reflect on the earliest sequence of events involving Iberians interacting with African polities and how that history might trouble the existing narratives of the West and its emergence. Instead, the emphasis has been on the inauguration of the slave trade and slavery and assigning economic prominence to those institutions in the unfolding histories of the Americas. As a site of metamorphosis, recall the opening scene of the mariners unloading the captives before the entourage of nobles, sites where elites, buyers, and owners reduced Africans into slaves. The iconic yet the iconic yet imaginary priest location symbolically delineated the boundaries between an African polity and the beginnings of Christian jurisdiction as tenuous. Trade um, signified the existence of sovereign authority, both African and European, which in turn highlighted an often overlooked intellectual and institutional, uh, overlooked Christian intellectual and institutional legacy, which like the imaginary priest's presence, scholars and popular lore usually reduce to ideological contortions. In reducing the earliest encounter with Africa to the slave trade and slavery, a new world commercial phenomenon, we have lost sight of a distinct narrative of power in Africa in which Africans stood for more than objects acted upon. Rather than an assertion of African agency, rather than an assertion of African agency, I'm interested in implications that this past might have for narrating the history of Europe, but also the history of Africa. The, the narrative of power the narrative of power historians and theorists associated with the West has woefully under-examined and under-theorized the African presence. This presence, I argue, comprises a site uh, to be examined for its role in Western formation, in, in, for its role in Western formation, a history in which Africa and Africans figured as objects, yes, but occasionally also emerge as historical subjects. 
And despite the colonial turn in European history, African Africans rarely feature in the earliest narratives of the Portuguese and Spanish past beyond the status of chattel already detached from what moderns, what in modern terms might be described as the political. Consequently, the objects of the slave trade and slavery enter history, the European past, devoid of these claims, ties and associations that had positioned them as subjects, clients, and vassals of African lords and elites whose own status fluctuated over time. From this perspective, it is easy to imagine and project natal alienation. It's easy to imagine natal alienation, social death, as a timeless phenomenon rather than as a dramatic act in involving force and violence that started roots into rootlessness. What is more, we ascribe a hegemonic singularity to the Europe, early um, European past. Europe in its relationship to Africa is always already a secular and dominant, fully forged entity with, with a singular political rationale. Europe in this configuration of the past is already the West rather than an entity or an idea that emerges through time and through its encounters with Africa. And from this aforementioned observation flow an assertion. Until Europe is understood in its historical specificity, its early modern encounters with Africa cannot be fully, it's, cannot be fully realized at its starkest. Europe and its encroachment on Africa unleashed unrelenting violence, highlighting the Janus face at the core of modern life. But this representation also flattens and condenses a complex past that grants Europeans far too much power. For Africa, Africans, and the African diaspora, the stakes are considerable. Concepts like tradition, authenticity, autonomy, cultural memory, agency, and resistance, which always acquired valence, valence through analogy and negation in the wake of encounters, cannot be conceived in their complexity until the historical specificity of the European past is clarified. As a post-colonial post historical intervention, but also a history that acknowledges the complex entanglement with Africa and Africans in the making of European social formation, in the making of the European Europe social formation. I'm pondering, I'm pointing to the need for an elaboration of an earlier European past as a necessary condition for writing histories of both the early modern and the contemporary African diaspora. Let us, let us employ the purported relationships between the African diaspora, slavery, and the modern to assert that contemporary representations of the Atlantic slave trade and New World slavery privilege a decidedly modern conception of political economy. Though this modern inflected prism, through this modern inflected prism, both slavery and the slave trade appear as phenom phenomenon configured in relation to, to the oikos, economic life, and commodification. In our thinking and writings, the economy and its constitutive elements, property and private life, the market and commodities, Trade and trading relations embody discrete entities that in turn define the social logic of, early, of the early modern slave trade and slavery. The assumption of an autonomous economic life belies the historical process whereby the economic emerged distinct from and eventually triumphed over other realms of social life. In directing attention at this historical process, we discern how newly emergent economic pra practices associated with the early modern European encounter inaugurated a tradition against the dominant practices of the day. The project at hand in its larger incarnation, that is the book, delineates the historical process through which economic life assumed um, sovereignty. Here then is a story of medieval and early modern power that preceded the ascendance of political economy, one in which laws, political thought, and ceremonial practices configured Africans as subjects, sovereigns, and occasionally even as gods. By recasting the initial century of African-European encounter, beginnings in 1441 and culminating around 1560, the historical narrative that emerges necessitates a distinct representation of the past. What are the implications for such a history of African-European interaction? Previous histories largely focused on the economics of enslavement and slavery that in turn served to counter the dynamics of cultural difference in the guise of race. 
which allegedly shaped how Europeans initially perceived and then interacted with Africans they encountered. In the long history of the African-European encounter um, preceding colonial rule in the 19th century, the slave trade and New World slavery occupied a dominant role that, that was exclusively depicted as the instrumental history of racial formation or the story of class difference. And I'm questioning that, right? The foundational encounters between Africans and Europeans embodied more than an aberrant yet overlooked moment in the long history of the slave trade and New World slavery. In analyzing the, the earliest phase of the slave trade, we discern long-standing traditions, specific institutional practices, established customs, and intellectual norms, whose social logic preceded but also survived the immediate African-European encounters. Various reasons explain how successive new forms supplanted these traditions, eventually eliminating their traces. In the process of, of epistemological erasure, pride of place belongs to the, triumph, the triumphal liberal narrative that framed the history of the slave trade and its decline at the hands of the enlightened West in a manner that disavowed the veracity, complexity, and intrinsic value of the African-European encounter. All right, so we're gonna to turn to Toby now to sort of let him sort of take on some of these questions. And then what I'm really hoping is that this wonderful audience here is going to sort of, you know, roll, roll up their sleeves and, um, and sort of like dig in and to digest some of the things that I'm throwing out there. Because the point again, it's a provocation. That's what this work is about. It's a provocation. It's an effort to sort of move some conversations forward. And some of the stuff is like in, intentionally trying to do some work around saying that, you know, that we need to linger on an earlier period. We need to sort of, and doing so, what the implications might be for rethinking, reframing, recurating, representing in, radi in radically different ways the kinds of stories that we might need to tell at this particular moment in the aftermath of the post-colonial or in the afterlife of the post-colonial. Thank you. Everybody here, if I okay, that's good. That's great. Um, well, first of all, I want to say what a pleasure and privilege it is to uh, have been invited to to be involved in, the, in in this presentation of Herman's wonderful book. Um, those of you who don't know Herman's previous books, I would just like to mention them because they're such um, standard bearers in the field. And you know, the the, the historiography of the, of the African diaspora is a is a large one, but I always really do try and insist to my graduate students in particular to read your work, Herman, because it is, it is fundamental. Um, so his first book, Africans in Colonial Mexico, Absolutism, Christianity, and Afro-Creole Consciousness, 1570 to 1640, is, was really one of the a pioneering work in, in looking at uh, the emergence of uh, the con a consciousness of an, of an African diaspora in the very early period uh, in, uh, of colonial Mexico in the 16th and 17th centuries, and, lo and looking at a whole range of sources which had never been looked at in, in, the, in this light, and, and, and just a fundamental work. And then followed by Colonial Blackness, A History of Afro-Mexico, 2009, which as Megan said, really was a, was a pioneering work in, in, uh, in looking at, at critical uh, history of, of, of race and of Africans in the diaspora in Mexico. So, and, and this new book um, is just another tour de force, and, and as you said, it is a provocation, uh, and that's absolutely what it should be. Uh, you, uh, the book uh, challenges a number of, a number of uh, uh, canonical figures in the field in, in really significant ways, um, and is one which fundamentally, because it is a provocative work and because it is challenging, will, as you said, be provisional. But one of the things which won't be provisional, I think, is, is, your f is, is the, the underlying approach which you take uh, and which you discussed here so well just now, which is really that still, to this day, the historiography and history of Africa, and particularly of Africans, renders them, as you said, as, as objects historically. And, and by fo changing the focus to sovereignty, your approach will begin a rebalancing of ensuring that in that in that deep historical past, Africans emerge as subjects and actors, and that's and that's a fundamental approach which I don't think will be provisional. I think it's 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 going to be very enduring. Um, 
I think um, the other thing which I liked very much just now about the presentation of the book uh, was the way in which you stressed um, that not only are you challenging the historiography which looks at um, <coughs> the history of Africa and of, and of slavery through the lens of uh, English abolitionists, white English abolitionists, male abolitionists who developed uh, a certain narrative in the 18th and 19th centuries, but you're also challenging this, this flattening and retrogression into the historical past from a, uh, an uber-materialist 21st century, which finds it impossible to conceive of a worldview which is not foregrounded, as you say, in a secular skepticism, mm -hmm. which, of course, is to completely disregard the perspective of actors in history who were not secular skeptics, uh, who believed fundamentally in uh, what we call the supernatural in English, uh, and in a different uh, worldview. And of course, that alienation from that worldview is part of what you, I think, coined a phrase which I'm going to remember, economic life assuming sovereignty. That mm -hmm. is a fundamental part of this history which you're beginning to, which you've mm -hmm. foregrounded here, and, and, and that's great. So as you know, I had, I had questions for you in, in kind of three different um, framings. So perhaps I'll try and, uh, which are, first of all, the relationship between African and European histories and relations and how by looking at those mm -hmm. in juxtaposition as you are, that reframes an understanding of, of, mm -hmm. of, of the, both of those histories. So perhaps we'll, we'll start with that. Um, as you just said, you, you, you quoted a line from the introduction, Unt until Europe is understood in its historical specificity, its early modern encounter with Africa cannot be fully realized. And by that, I, I, I think by that reference to the specificity, you, you bring out the fundamental relationship of slavery and the slave trade to the rise of European empires and how that's been occluded mm. in so much literature on that. But as you also note, that the implication of this is also that African histories themselves, as you just said, require a, a, a realized understanding of that specificity of the European mm -hmm. as well as of the African past. And, to, and another line from your book, you say, concepts like tradition, authenticity, autonomy, cultural memory, agency, and resistance cannot be conceived in their complexity until the historical specificity of the European past is clarified. I'll linger on that again, because I think it's so important. Concepts like traditional authenticity, autonomy, cultural memory, agency, and resistance cannot be conceived in their complexity until the historical specificity of the European past is clarified. So the first question would be, what do you think the implications are that the methodologically and, historic and for historians uh, and those interested in, the, in, in this past, that this historical conceptualization of Africa is so deeply connected to understanding of Europe, a, a mm -hmm. historical specificity of Europe. What methodological and historical implications of that do you mm -hmm. see? Thank you. Um, those are um, some really good questions. And one of the things that I want to, one of the, I'm sorry. It's a problem when you're a big man. You just sort of think that your voice just carries like, you know, <laughs> godlike throughout space. Um, so I'm just going <laughs> to. I just want to just take over the room, my voice here. Um, but can you hear me now? All right. And so one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do with that is, again, I want to be careful that the sounding of what that means, right? I'm not, because there's a way in which folks, one of the, one of the ways in which you could read that it, on, a, on a flat or on a flat level is that I'm saying, oh, we need to study Europe in order to get back to Africa, right? And that's not what that's not what the implications of this the, the implications here are. What I'm actually trying to say in relationship to this work in regard to the 15th and 16th century, what I'm actually trying to get us to think about is that the Africa that comes into the encounters, that there's a, a kind of flatness to the Europe that we have in when we think about Africa in relationship to the 15th and 16th and 17th century, that there's a particular kind of hegemonic understanding of Europe that does an enormous amount of work, right? It's a Europe that, that really is the Europe of the 18th and 19th century that is actually doing work for the 15th century, right? And so that the kind of specificity that we need in thinking through like encounters and thinking through process and dynamics on the ground requires us to sort of move beyond a certain kind of um, a certain kind of notion of consolidate of a consolidated West that is fully formed and fully forged, right? And that and that which against the African, or for that matter, any subaltern past, it basically seems only to, to exist in a, in a kind of dwarf-like manner, right? And But because when we look at this process in an earlier period, and when we look at Europe 
as something that has to be constituted and processed, we sort of see that it doesn't do so. It's not done in, in a singular or in a hermetically sealed manner independent of other experiences, but that it's actually produced in relationship to other, other peoples, other polities, other kinds of experiences. And what I'm actually saying is that when you look at the histories of the European encounter, Portuguese and Spain, when we think about how important those places were in terms of the formation of the modern and the formation of the emergence of the absolute state um, in the context of the 15th and 16th century and the 16th and specifically, then one can say that Africa plays a significant role in the very shaping of the very categories that we, uh, that we oftentimes assume are specifically European categories. Right? And, and, and that is process, that's about a process, that's about a dynamic in which, so that we have to then do the work to actually acknowledge that Europe, whatever that idea of Europe that we have, can't be that from the 18th and 19th century that we then project into a story of the 15th century and sort of say, well, you know, here's a story of resistance on the part of the Africans. But we're actually having to think this through at the level of politics, at the level of theory, at the point of understanding that, say, in this encounter of the 15th century, the very state, the very idea of a state that is configured around sovereign power actually is produced in relationship to the Portuguese and Spanish's relationship with African elites, African politics, African polities. And, and we lose sight of that, not just as a historical phenomenon, but we also lose sight of that at the level of theory, right? Because when we think about someone like Locke, and we think about Hobbes, or Hobbes in particular, and thinking about sovereign power, you know, and that's a much later period already. I mean, I'm already moving it out of the 15th century. But I'm thinking someone like you know Hobbes. Hobbes is actually theorizing in in relationship to colonial experiences, not fundamentally only in relationship to experiences that are taking place on the ground here, right? And and we have to think about that fundamentally as a way of the theorization about power, about despotism, about tyranny. And, and similarly, one can do that same kind of work with earlier theorists, and that's what, I'm, what, that's what this kind of work is trying to do, to say, you know, one of the things that we've done in our working, in our theorization, in our theorization of power, we haven't actually, you know, we sort of forget, we sort of marginalize Spain and Portugal, because for one thing, because of the kind of Catholic traditions, right, and we sort of theorize, we theorize political theory, or political theory begins, in other words, with the Italians, moves to the French, moves to the English. That then, by, by the way, it, it forecloses the possibility of including you know, the Catholic theologians like Victoria and others who are actually fundamentally engaged with what's happening on the ground in Africa. And they're theorizing that in their text. But precisely because they're theologians, we don't accord that a form of political theory. And, and what I'm actually trying to then do is that these are categories, these are philosophical categories that are lost to us, but these are all then subsequently also theoretical categories that then make their way into knowledge production and how we think about a range of things like the state and all sorts of other formulations of notions of what constitutes the political modern, right? The state, um, the public, the private, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that fundamentally, going and looking at the stuff on the ground and seeing how it's playing itself out in, in the minutia actually produces a different story in which Europe's sovereignty is not something that is guaranteed or assumed, but actually has to be produced in relationship to a specific history on the ground in relationship to African polities and African histories, African dynamics on the ground, <laughs> among others. So that's a kind of... Yeah. I mean, there are so many questions I could ask you, but I, I, I want to pick up on something you said in your talk and something you just said now, that you, what you, it's about the theorization of power. And, and you said at one point in your talk, you're not interested in, in making an assertion of African agency, you're interested in an analysis of power. And that reminded me that one of the, uh, in your book, one of the, his, one of the historians who you, who you critique trenchantly is, is John Thornton. Uh, and in many ways, I think Thornton's uh, book, African Africans in the Making of the Atlantic World, was one of the books which really catalyzed the, the framing of agency as a fundamental trope for thinking about African history and the African diaspora. So how does wow. your focus on sovereign power 
reposition the place of African agency at, uh, through the theorization of power uh, yeah. in this discourse? Yeah. So I mean, that's a great question. Um, and again, I mean, so like, I just want to be very clear. I criticize Thornton not because I'm not just, it's not a gratuitous criticism, right? What I'm trying to say is that the implications of somebody's work that does an enormous, he does an enormous amount of like intellectual labor to sort of center what he thinks is centering African peoples and, and, and Africa in the history of the Atlantic. And that's an important work, and I sort of make that very clear in this project, that that's an important work, in, especially in the context of African history in, the, in relationship to the United States, right? Where when he is writing that work, there was basically African history in the United States was basically the history of slavery, right? And what he was doing was actually trying to say that there was an African history that can't be subsumed under the history of slavery, right? And so that's the framework in which, and I'm saying like that's an important set of frame, that's an important framing. But at the same time, his effort, his, his, his theoretical framework is in which all forms of agency are, are produced through a certain kind of liberal project. Right? And that is that there has to be an agent and agencies that he, he needs to find those in a particular kind of manner, certain kinds of behavior. And I'm and to me that is a that that kind of project of sort of saying, you know, African agency or Africans are human, right? I don't I I, I want to evacuate that question. I don't want to even that's not a question that you have to even begin with, right? Are Africans human, right? That's not, that, that the, the conditions of possibility for talking about Afri uh, the African past doesn't, doesn't actually require a question, an issue, or an, the, raising the question, are Africans human? Or do they have, um, or do they engage in resistance? Or do they actually constitute a people, right? That's just a given, and that wasn't necessarily a given in this particular kind of project. And what I'm trying to also then do, with I'm trying to foreclose a kind of turn that we have to actually find the agency as a way of legitimizing that peoples have a history. Peoples have a history, and that's just a given, period. And people are engaged in agency, and that just like they're human, period. That doesn't have to be told or projected or imposed or granted by a scholar or by a theorist or a philosopher, that is a, a historical given. And so within that framework then, what I'm trying to then do is that what are the other ways that we might want to imagine human experiences and human experiences that are configured around certain categories like the social or the cultural, right? And I'm trying to keep the cultural at bay in this project because I think the cultural does so much work, right? There's so much work that the cultural does that oftentimes forecloses an engagement with the political. And so I'm interested in the question of sovereignty and politics and, and sovereignty and politics, especially in relationship to power, because I think that there's a way in which we lose sight of that in these particular kinds of encounters. And when we look at the, 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 the historical record, the travel writing, the ways in which Europeans are configuring their encounters, making sense of them, rendering them, curating them, what they're actually doing is doing so, they're narrating these things in relationship to <coughs> In, in, in and through the register and the modality of the political. And that is deference, authority, hierarchies. And they're trying to make sense of those, right? Because they actually have to make sense of those processes in order for them to engage in trade, for them to be able to survive, for them to be able to land, for them to be able to build forts, or to be able to figure out how to how to make sense of the dynamic that they're confronting, which is not on their own terms, right? And so that there's a constant effort in these records, right, that we, if, because we're not lingering, we don't see that, right? What we see is like, we, we move very quickly from that process to like, oh yeah, suddenly 5,000 slaves are removed from from the coast, from the coast, right? Rather than sort of saying like, what would the mechanisms, what would the ideas of transactions be? What, in what ways would these processes would have happened over the course of decades, right? So that we move very quickly in relationship to Africa-European encounters. We move very quickly from, from a, a notion of time that moves very, 
like suddenly generations don't matter. Even the concept of generation, right? We quickly two centuries, right? 15th century right to the 17th century, as opposed to how would this be working itself out in, in the 1460s? And this is why looking at someone's like Toby's work is like really amazing, right? Because when you look at what he, what he does is that he's actually lingering in the 1460s, right? And saying like, look, let us think carefully about what happens in this period, in, in relationship to Cape Verde, in this, in this particular period, and Guinea-Bissau, right? Don't think about this over a century, but think about it in relationship to a, a, a number of years, right? And we know that that matters in our own time, right? That there's, there, there are scales of time, but we also, in relationship to these particular kinds of histories and particular kinds of understandings, we're, we're so quick to dismiss it because we already know what's, what the outcome is. And we're so quick to get to the outcome that we don't actually understand what's going on on the ground that might have produced different kinds of histories, different kinds of dynamics on the spot. I mean, it, I love what you're saying about imagining historical experiences differently. It reminds me of Winthrop Jordan in, his, in the introduction to his book, White Over Black, who said, um, one of the roles of the historian should precisely be to open up the imagination to different trajectories and possibilities of the historical experience. And this idea that we know the outcome, that there was only ever one possible outcome, mm -hmm. is something that which historians have to challenge, and I, I, which all of us have to challenge. Um, and, I th and that's one of the important things about the the reframing of, of perspective which you're offering us here. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to move on to, and, and as, you, as you just said really, that those different perspectives are then evacuated in the late 18th century um, uh, by the whole process of abolition and mm -hmm. the hold which that has come to have over the perception, not only of the history of slavery, but of the African past. Um, and perhaps I'll, I'll, maybe this will be my last question, if there's time I'll come back to more, but what I, what I think would be, a, useful perhaps also for the audience is to have some thoughts from you on how that abolitionist narrative, both implicitly and explicitly, mm. shapes still today the historical and political perspectives on Africa and on the history of, of slavery. Yeah, that's, I hope that's not your last question, but that's a great question again. Um, he has great questions and he's very kind to like sort of um, share them with me. So, so I just want to understand that you, you might think that, ooh, like that Bennett, he's very quick on his feet. <laughs> I'm just he as is, quick as his, uh, as his generosity has been. So, um, and so I just want to be very clear about that. Um, but I want to say this, right? There's a chapter in this book called uh, Liberalism. And I tell the story about a liberal historian. And, and it's a story that takes place, one of the first stories of, of, the, of sort of explaining the history of slavery, right? It's a, it's a British writer who is going to, who writes and discusses the story of the new world. And, and one of the problems, and so Toby's question is really asking me, what is, it, what is, it, what, what is my concern with the abolitionist narrative? And, I'm, and basically what my concern is, is that the abolitionist narrative has and continues to frame how we approach the story of Africa and African history, right? It, and it's not just that it's a singular story, but that it's hegemonic, right? It sort of tells a story. It's not just a triumphant narrative, right? But it tells the story of Africa at that moment in time and then sort of projects it backwards into centuries of history, right? It's a story in which Europe is not a problem is not configured, doesn't have necessary history, is fully formed, is a fully formed sovereign entity. And that at that moment lends itself, produces, engenders something called the abolition of the slave trade for reasons of you know, like liberal beneficence. And that then has to do with how the slave trade is configured and how Africa is configured, and it marks things in good and bad, and it marks things in terms of like, you know, how we configure you know, the economic, the social, the cultural. And what that does is that we have been trapped by that prism, right? That's not just a prism of abolitionism. It's not just an ideology, right? It's the kind of cultural logic that inhabits our thinking in relationship to the historical past in as it pertains to 
as it pertains to earlier histories, right? So in this book, what I'm trying to do is to say that the liberal perspective, or the, uh, the liberal perspective that sort of, that is mediated through the story of abolition does an enormous amount of work of colonizing an earlier history. And, and the way in which we even try to decolonize that story is always coming back to the abolitionist, right? Rather than sort of thinking that there might be other histories there. That, and that's actually part of the project. That's part of the political project of liberalism, right? The political project of liberalism is, in fact, one in which it actually has to colonize its past to sort of suggest that there is no such thing as an other possibility, right? That there is no such thing as a different history prior to that moment. Right? So that then, therefore, all the ways in which we think about this moment and subsequent moments are already, already foretold for us. Right? That's, what, that's, what liberal, that's what liberal hegemonic thought is. It limits our possibilities for thinking differently about the past, the present, and the future. Mm -hmm. And I think that that fundamentally is how we sort of frame and configure then the story of Africa's encounter with Europe and for that matter, the slave trade, the story of the slave, and so on, right? And it, and it means that then when we approach the 15th century, we're not approaching it from, we're not approaching it with forward-thinking writing, right? Like what's going on on the ground and how might that be dynamic and how might that have a different kind of sense of, of, of play, right? Lingering and looking for other kinds of forms of, other forms of being, other forms of engagement, other forms of configuring the present. Right? What we're doing is looking for, we're looking for that, that story here back and projecting it and then writing that to, to bring it up to date with what we believe we know. And that process, I think, in, in, the, in, the, larger, in the larger book, I'm also trying to say that, that that project is part of what has to happen, what we have to be doing in terms of you know, thinking like you know, the, some of these South African scholars that I've been encountering you know, in, in October, who are talking about decolonization, right? Who, you know, because part of this is a bigger project of decolonization of knowledge production, right? Mm -hmm. It's thinking through, like, how does one actually do that? How does one think about knowledge production, not just ideology, but knowledge production? Fundamentally, knowledge production is at the core of not just history writing, but at the social sciences. How do we rethink that, right? How do we go in there and re-fundamentally and reread and rethink not just Hegel and <coughs> Baudin and Hobbes and Locke and all these other people in relationship to these texts. But how do we also think about them and, and, and their absorption, their, 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 the ways in which they're, they're drawing on these, these encounters here to fundamentally shape an understanding of, of like the political theory that becomes the history of the West, right? That's fundamentally part of what this project is about, right? It's asking us, some, it's asking us to do forward forward-looking writing, but also a kind of theorization, a fundamental different theorization, which we haven't done because of liberal thought, is so fundamentally pervasive in knowledge production. We just have, and we're just, we operate around it. And I think that there's some work that's been done, like, you know, like, you know, Chakrabarti and others have been doing that. But I, I don't think fundamentally in relationship to, you know, in relationship to these encounters, these histories, this story, that that has fundamentally been done.